Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 7th of December, as we record. Today, we are talking rental businesses, two companies with contrasting fortunes over recent times. We are going to begin with FTSE 100 equipment hire company Ashted, which has been one of the stars of the index, or at least it was in the years leading up to 2021-22, when higher interest rates took a bit of the heat out the share price. Uh, There was also the first real sign of weakness on an operational level uh, last month in comments the company made. It has since posted interim figures in recent days, so we are going to discuss those. We're also looking at van hire and accident claims business Ready Northgate, which has struggled rather more since the combination of those two companies. It too has had interim results this week, so we'll be discussing those as well. And last but not least, our cover story this week is looking at stock pickers' time to shine, considering whether this may now be the moment at last for active managers and stock pickers in general to start outperforming in some or at least in greater quantities. Joining me to discuss all of this are of the line from Ashstead, Mark Robinson. <laughs> Hello there, Dan. Taking uh, inspiration from uh, the company's own location, you've uh, you've relocated there. Uh, Julian Hoffman is not in a related area this week, but he is on hand as well. Hi, Julian. Oh, hello there, Dan. <laughs> nice to see you, Julian. Nice to uh, surprise you by the sounds of it. And in the studio, we have Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. And Alex Newman. Hey, Dan. So we'll begin with Ashton, and we'll start with you, Gemma, because uh, you covered the figures this week. They were overshadowed rather by that warning last month. How did the figures look on Monday? And what did the, the warning you know, constitute last month as well? What did the company say there? So... The warning actually wasn't that bad, I think Mm. is the first thing to say. So they basically said on the revenue side of things, growth is now due to reach between 11 and 13% compared with the 13 and 16% they previously forecast. And EBITDA is expected to be about 2.5% below market expectations. So in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't really that terrible. But I think the market had just got used to such a stellar performance from Ashdead that it basically came as a big a big shock in November and shares did not react well. But the, the December figures that came out basically reflected what was what was foreshadowed in, in November. So revenue growth in the first half was very good. It was 16% um, and adjusted operating profits rose by 12% to $799 million. So there was a lot to like in the figures, really. And do we think the big question, you know, that this is just going to be a blip? Some of the issues were caused by the writers' strike because I think specifically it's Canadian business actually rents out a lot of equipment to, this is the Hollywood writers' strike, you know, to uh, productions of that nature. Obviously those strikes, that strike and the actors' strike are over, so that suggests this is just a temporary thing. There were other aspects to the, the slowdown as well, though. Obviously there are concerns about, you know, construction and maybe commercial real estate down the line. But but do we think this might just be a short-term blip rather than a, the beginning of a, a downtrend? That's certainly what management is saying. So, yeah, as you say, that was the Hollywood writer's strike that cropped up and the fact that apparently there were fewer hurricanes and wildfires in the period than there were last year. So sort of demand for that equipment to rebuild just wasn't there. So management was really, really keen to say basically the end markets, particularly in the US, are extremely strong and, you know, just as robust as they, they were before. There were just these sort of one-off incidents. It's it's hard to know, given how badly investors reacted, how convinced they were by that 
I think, and it's it's one where basically you're at the position of guesswork, I think, which isn't always always nice to know what the second half will bring. Ashton, of course, does make, you know, as our comments imply, you know, the vast majority of its money from the US, from the, the Sunbelt business. The shares, you know, have recovered a little bit in recent weeks, which is probably an indication as much of the, you know, the rate cut narrative and, you know, Ashton's keying into the, the US economy, which seems to remain relatively strong for now. Can we talk a little bit more about those US operations and what it's been doing to, you know, keep churning out the really impressive growth rates. Uh, you know, the business is sunbelt over there. It's There's a consolidation angle to that as well, I think, and, and other things it's doing over there that really have it for now, or ha- it has been firing on all cylinders until recently. Yeah, basically, it's been spending loads and loads of money. So in the period, there was $2.5 billion worth of capital invested in the business. And um, that was up from $1.7 billion in the same period last year. And also spent over $7 million worth of of cash on acquisitions. So it's basically just on this massive expansion push into the US and trying to consolidate a market which is very fragmented and get its name out there. And to be honest, it seems to be doing a pretty good job of it. Julian, what's your take on the business? Maybe we'll turn to you rather than the man who is uh, who is in the uh, uh, the town where Ashted was founded. We'll, we'll turn to you and say, well, what's your take on Ashted as a business and its current prospects? Yeah, but that's a shame because that was a quality anecdote from Mark. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's an in- uh, I would link the shareholders' nervousness about Ashted to the fact that they do quite a lot of business in Florida. So when you look at the, how the you know the hiring and waiting is that they basically have rebuild Florida every time there's a hurricane, or at least they rent out the tools to do that. And what's been happening in Florida in the last year or so is that nobody can get insurance for their houses. So I would link partly the nervousness about future revenues to the fact that uh, if there is another hurricane and Florida does get uh, trashed again that uh, people aren't going to easily get the money to rebuild their houses, which might affect how the tool business works. So I think there is a definite correlation between the insurance market and how these kind of contractor businesses work. Uh, But yes, it's, you know, (laughs) yeah, Ashton has been so solid and so predictable for so many years that uh, to have this kind of warning is is very unusual. And uh, I would imagine that if it keeps you know, tight operations, which uh, it is also very famed for for running its business uh, you know, very cash efficiently and um, able to generate quite a lot of operational gearing, that they'll ride through it. But uh, the question really, if, if you link uh, that insurance um, ambiguity uh, alongside an election year in the US, where when you actually look at how infrastructure projects work over there, there tends to be a reigning back of new spending in the advance of an election. It's 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 a, a trend I picked up on when I looked at how the market reacts. Um, and there's a definite correlation with how, uh, how spending projects work. So you might see um, slowness in the second half of the year because of that electoral cycle. Um, so we, yeah, I think that's another thing that the investors are are, bang, are, are baking into the shares, as it were. Well, let's talk about Ashted's sort of sensitivity to wider conditions. As you say, Gemma, it has been investing a lot in the business, and one of its qualities, if not its main quality, has been you know the ability to produce really good returns on that investment, and you know continue to grow and continue to compound in that way. Uh, nonetheless, it is a construction you know centric business. It, it does like to point out that you know it's neither keyed in entirely or solely to residential construction or to commercial, you know, 
the big office kind of building, those kind of things which are under some pressure. But, you know, there is a cyclicality there. Do, do we think that the, the strings to its bow in terms of its ability to expand and also the structural drivers it talks about, things like the increasing propensity of businesses to uh, rent equipment from it rather than buy it outright, do, do we think they're enough to, to offset these cyclical risks? I think if you pull up Ashted's share price and look over years and years and years, it suggests that, yes, it can withstand those sorts of pressures. So until basically the start of 2022, it had been on a very, very strong upward trajectory. And it does seem to have weathered those quite extreme cycles pretty resiliently. I think the one thing that is a worry is the fact because it's been on this massive expansion push, its net debt has been climbing um, and net debt to EBITDA now sits at about 1.8 times. Um, and in this latest period, there was a free cash outflow. So it really is working its balance sheet. And then if if there is this decline in demand, that could start causing some issues. But as you say, it's been very tightly managed over the last few years. So it would be a bit of a shock. But I think that's probably one reason to be wary. The thing Julian alluded to is maybe worth, uh, if not dwelling on, then just considering as well, because... You know, this is going to be, well, it will be next year, an election year in the US. Uh, and the, the rise of the mega project has been a big driver for Ashtead as well. And, you know, there are a lot of infrastructure bills in the US and infrastructure activity. You do wonder if there is a change in government, whether the, the Trump administration might, you know, based on the previous term, Trump does like a bit of fiscal stimulus, but something like the Inflation Reduction Act might seem to be a bit of a political football if that's the case. But that's further down the line, so... For now, I think it's rather a case of, of looking at how the US economy holds up in the next few months and, and how Ashted can prove itself to be a non-cyclical business, we all see. But there is no doubt it is a quality business. We are going to turn, though, to a different rental company, as mentioned at the top, Ready Northgate. Gemma, you also covered those uh, interim figures for us this week. It's been a very busy time. Now, this is a rather uh, different state of affairs. You know, the company doesn't have that long a track record because it in its current form, it is born out of that merger a couple of years back between two different businesses with some synergies and overlaps. But, you know, one was a, a claims management business for vehicles and one is, you know, vehicle rental hire, largely vans, white goods, vans, things like that. How do the interim figures look, first of all? They look OK, actually. Um, and as you say, yeah, the company's the outcome of a merger in 2020. But in a way, it's still a business of two halves. So when they, they present the results, they do split out Ready and Northgate still. And it seems for the past past few sets of results, the Ready side of things, so that's sort of the claim services element of the business, has been responsible for a lot of the growth. Uh, so they've been winning new contracts, new customers. Everything seems pretty pretty nice over there. I think the vehicle hire side of the business... So the Northgate bit is the bit which um, people are more worried about. And a lot of that is down to vehicle supply. So there just hasn't been the supply of vans coming through um, and there have been fewer vans on hire in the latest period. So that's reason for a bit of nervousness, I think. But the company also has a big presence in Spain. And for some reason, vehicles in Spain seem to be abundant. So there's lots of vehicles on hire. Um, the supplies improved a lot. Um, and rental profit margins are at sort of their their peak at the moment. So management seem pretty pretty chipper about the situation. Yeah, it's interesting they can't connect those dots. I mean, I'm no expert. I'm sure they've uh, considered how to do that as well. But Spain isn't so far away, is it? That tightness of supply is, you know, is in some ways a, a legacy of the pandemic, isn't it? And in some ways it is helpful in that, you know, it enables prices to rise and them to, to squeeze more that way. But ultimately, 
if you're struggling to service demand, then it's still going to be an issue. What about the, uh, you know, the kind of the future of the business? You know, where, where are the growth opportunities going to come from if, if they come from anywhere? So a few places, I think. So on the, the claim services side of things, they were saying they were winning new contracts and their clients seem, there seemed to be this bigger tendency to outsource the issue to Ready. So that seemed to be an area of growth. Um, Spain, again, seems to be the big, the big area. I don't know if they'll push elsewhere geographically. But at the moment, a lot of the business seems to be underpinned by vehicle disposals in terms of they're getting big, big sums of money by selling off their old vehicles just because the, the prices they're fetching are so high. And it'll be interesting in the future to see what direction that goes in and whether that will start weighing on on the numbers a bit. Yeah, there is a, there is an issue here, isn't there? Because as you say, you know, the business can sell off its old rental equipment, which is something Ashted as a rental business uh, does as well. And and the the issue is to do with depreciation for Ready. I mean, Ashted did have some quirks itself actually in its, in its own figures, but but Ready has been as you say, making a lot of money from these vehicles, more these sales, more than it would have thought because supply has been so tight, which does mean that, you know, it's effectively overestimated depreciation levels. And that may in some ways sadly come back to haunt it now because of an accounting change. Yeah, so there is a risk. This will be extremely boring, so don't switch off. Um, <laughs> but basically, at the end of last financial year, they realised they were depreciating their assets too quickly, basically, because um, they were holding their value really, really well. So they've now slowed down their rate of depreciation. But then, as you say, the risk is actually the prices of these older vehicles will suddenly fall if the supply improves and people, other companies start defleeting, as it's called, so selling off more of their, their assets. And then they could be in this tricky situation where they've slowed down their rate of depreciation, but actually now their assets are losing a lot of their value more quickly. So that's a, a little bit of accounting uncertainty, I'd say, in there. Yeah, which may explain why, well, part of the reason why the shares are you know, relatively cheap optically, which we'll come to in a minute. Another thing we uh, should touch on is the, not quite an elephant in the room, but there was a uh, talk a few weeks back of uh, them making a bid for Halfords, which ultimately didn't uh, materialise. You know, that may still be on the, the table, but, you know, that would be quite a transformative deal as well. But before we get to that, uh, Mark, what are your thoughts on, on Ready as a company and its, its fortunes? Well, I was interested to hear uh, Gemma's uh, points there about depreciation. It's uh, not difficult to understand why this might have uh, played out, given the imbalances uh, right across the light commercial vehicle market as well. It's interesting also that uh, the shortfall seems to be uh, uh, most pronounced in the United Kingdom with right-hand vehicles. I guess, as you alluded to earlier on, Dan, this is a something of a hangover from the uh, the difficulties we experienced leading up to during and after the pandemic as well. Insofar as we had a major semiconductor shortage that was well documented, but also the European Union had increased or, or tightened up the environmental uh, regulations as well, which again weighed on uh, the supply chain. And uh, it's taking a while for all of this to work through the system, no doubt. They've they've had the problem since the merger, and there's some, and there's a, there's existing legacy issues as well, which may be weighing on the shares a bit. But I, I did notice that on a price to book value, they're uh, trading at zero uh, point eight, which could indicate anyway that they're undervalued at the moment, and that sort of has been passed over in the market to a certain degree. So um, yeah, I think from uh, uh, Gemma also pointed out as well that the forward uh, 
the forward PE ratio is uh, under seven at the moment. So it's uh, looking a, a decent buy opportunity, I'd say, all things being equal. Yeah, the valuation is, you know, as I say, it tends to be quite attractive. And, and equally, as you, you point out, two things that I want to pick up on, the first being the uh, the reputational issues, maybe, in the, or the, the legacy issues, rather, because there have been, you know, the side of the business that was once help hire, that was a long time ago now, but maybe that's weighing a bit. That said, the, the ready management is in charge now, and I think they are quite well respected. So, you know, potentially a sign of them getting themselves into gear. The other thing uh, you mentioned, which very sensibly points out why they haven't been to join the dots between Spain and the UK is, of course, the difference between right and left hand drive. So it's not a case, <laughs> not a case as I was implying, yeah. of just shift, uh, shipping those vans over and solving the problem. Uh, it's been a long I mean, day. It's been a long it's, day. It's worth mentioning as well that even over the last uh, three, well, actually over the, over the last um, five years even, the company in general terms has traded within a fairly narrow band which suggests that uh, it does have some underlying support there within the shareholder base too. So that's worth keeping in mind. I've been looking around generally at the UK market and I'm surprised at just how many mispriced assets there are. And there's obviously reasons why some people might be slightly circumspect about the stock, but as part of the general markdown or the sluggish performance of the UK equity markets, you know this this presents uh, this presents another example of uh, why why it's a pretty good time for uh, stock pickers. Indeed, well, well ironically, isn't it? Ch- ch- chips are probably more expensive than shares at the moment. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, that was a was a lovely segue into our final section, Mark. However. I'm going to ruin it because I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about Ready before that, before we get to the stock pickers, because there is this Halfords uh, uh, deal or this Halfords, you know, uh, uh, prospect that that has emerged. Uh, and Gemma, I know you've spoken to a couple of people about this. And I mean, it's an unusual one. Obviously, there is some crossover in the business, but it would be a whole new area. So in some ways, it is reminiscent of bringing together a claims management company and a vehicle hire company as they did to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I did read about it and think another one, you know, another big merger, is that a good idea? Um, I think when the analysts I spoke to said they could sort of see the logic of it because obviously Halfords has the big car servicing and repairs arm Mm. with lots of sort of stations dotted around the country, good geographical reach. So that side of things does make sense. But then obviously you have the retail side with all the bikes and that just doesn't seem to flow naturally into Ready Northgate at all. But I mean, we haven't heard any more of it. There's been no mention. So it'll be interesting to see if anything does come of it. But it yeah. didn't seem a completely natural fit to me. It may be a pens down situation for a while, but but clearly they are looking around for opportunities. As our colleague Robin Hardy wrote in a IC Alpha report earlier this year on Ready Northgate, which is a very good uh, analysis of, of the business, you know, there's maybe other questions about capital allocation too. You know, the dividend yield is pretty attractive, 6.5% or so, I think. But, uh, you know, you wonder if they might be better served doing something like Ashdead and trying to consolidate a fragmented market. But, you know, I'm sure management are looking at all these things. Anyway, it is now time to turn to our final segment, as Mark so nicely cued about stock pickers' time to shine, our cover story this week. Alex Newman is with us, the author of the piece. Alex, it's fair to say it's not, or certainly active managers in general don't have great reputations en masse because they do struggle to beat the market in certain areas, and they have done for a number of years. And this year has been no different, uh, as I'm sure we'll come to. But but can we talk about a bit about that backdrop and also about your thinking in writing this piece? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I mean, often the the fund managers we talk about or get, end up highlighted in the financial press are the outliers, are the ones who have done, you know, some, in some cases spectacularly badly, but more often than not, have done really, really well and would fall into the five percent that um, the late Charlie Munger early this year characterised as, as as those who can consistently beat the market average. The thing he had to say about the rest of the market is uh, not especially kind, but perhaps fair that saying every everybody else is living in a state of extreme denial. And, you know, before we get to the, I suppose, the big economic and market reasons why active managers have, have struggled to beat the market, you can sort of boil down things a little bit probabilistically or mathematically. So when we think about beating the market or alpha in the jargon, you know, if the, if the average stock picker always has a sort of coin flips chance of beating the market in any given year and that their results are always perfectly distributed one side or the other of the average, then over time they should match the market. But lots of studies have shown that, you know, the chance of beating the market isn't a coin flip, it's worse than that. And if you keep multiplying worse than average odds year after year, you're probably your probability of beating the market withers away. So very few fund managers, as obviously Charlie Munger and lots of others have point, pointed out, managed to beat the market over the, the long haul. But I suppose the, the more proximate reason for writing the piece is kind of a, it, it's just another sort of follow-on piece to one we did last year on whether this is, we're in a sort of paradigm shift or new era for markets. And that's because until about a year and up, or this is getting on for two years now, we had this very, very long and very, very powerful story in markets um, that was driven by one factor, which was the downward shift in interest rates. So um, that direction obviously bumped up and, 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 and down, you know, depending on various economic cycles or, or crises. But it was heading pretty much from 1981 until 2021 in one direction. And when interest rates are falling, that not only lowers the cost of capital for businesses, so it makes it a bit easier for them to run businesses and improves their equity returns, but it also lowers volatility and also the discount rate on future cash flow assumptions. Uh, and the net effect of that has been to really juice valuations. Just to bring it back to active investing and what that means for active in- investors, when a rising tide like this is is able to lift all boats, it makes it really hard to be discriminatory. So, you know, as we sort of highlighted at the top, there are lots of different kinds of stock pickers who have still been able to find ways of being discriminatory, being active in their stock selection and beating the market. But for the average, which, you know, really, really matters for our purposes when we're talking about, you know, the you know the average stock picker or the average investor, it's it's not the case. So that's the, the sort of... Um, that's the broad backdrop that are, you know, an impetus for the piece. There's lots of other reasons, I think, why um, this, you know, this 40-year tailwind has, uh, you know, possibly come to an end. And we're, we're really still unpacking what it means for the passive active debate in the years to come. Um, but I think that is, you know, if we're going to single one reason, that's, that is, that is the one. There are a lot of strands to this. And, and, of course, you know, we are very much advocates for you know, self-directed investing and people choosing their own shares. And, and a lot of people, some of them, what you're saying may sound counterintuitive because a lot of people will have had a lot of success over recent decades doing that. And whereas the last couple of years in this new regime have been very difficult, both at a market level and an individual level. I suppose that's partly because a lot of the troubles in the past couple of years have been focused on smaller mid caps where the both the professional active manager and the individual stock picker like to to make their investments so that has been a headwind too i i also wonder if when, when you're looking at professionals 
you know, they are bound by certain rules and, you know, structures they have to follow in their funds and, and strategies and, and risk-adjusted approaches, which is very sensible given they're uh, dealing with a large number of people. But I wonder if, you, you know, the individuals who have the freedom to invest as they see fit uh, maybe have a better chance of, uh, of, you know, making a go of it. The other point I wanted to talk about, though, was was just in relation to one thing you mentioned could also be perhaps falling down the agenda, again, maybe counterintuitively, is is fees, because part of the reason people have gone to passives, well, one of the reasons is they are they have been much cheaper. That fee gap has narrowed, but also there's perhaps an argument that fees will be focused on less in the years ahead, which to me, I mean, I instinctively sometimes think when retu- if returns are lower, you focus on fees more because they take a bigger mm. proportion, but there are arguments to the contrary as well. Yeah, and it's a, it's a huge part of the active versus passive debate. I mean, it is a relative advantage, obviously, if you're being charged 1% a year to hold a, a, a mutual fund versus, you know, an all-world ETF, which is, you know, I mean, they're down to sort of 10 basis points and below now in some in some products, then that is still a big relative advantage. But there are two things which I think look different now to, the, to what has come before. The first of which is the tailwind of falling passive fees is dimming in part because it hasn't got much further to run because if you know your vanguard charging 10 basis points you can't we can't get to the point where they're starting to pay investors for uh, holding holding funds so that tailwind potentially is dimming although i do totally take the point um, that the passive industry would make in saying that well active managers have still got a lot further to go to be competitive in price but maybe the the big one is just in the way that fees are are seen next to the, all the other things that investors have to consider. So when you apply a higher discount rate to expe- expected returns, which you have to do in a world of normalised interest rates and higher inflation, then the opportunity cost of fees and expense ratios declines, relatively speaking. In other words, if you're thinking about, OK, well, the, the contrast between one, a 1% fee and 0.1%, from a passive fund, I think when valuations are where they are now, which is still historically high for global equities, that needs to play more of a, a role in in that comparison, which which might not be fair because that one percent going to a, a an active fund manager might be a fair price to pay for being very you know being discriminatory and taking bets which aren't just relying on sustaining this quite high valuation global equity power story, which has uh, gone on for so long. A couple of points to conclude. The first, an interesting point you made about thematic investing, you know, it kind of follows on from what you've been saying. If the rising tide is no longer lifting all boats, then participation in one particular market won't be enough, which, you know, thematic investing has has risen in prominence in recent years. And, and uh, you know, the area, areas such as tech have obviously been a big example of that. I suppose the dispersion, we have already started to see that this year in the you know much discussed story of how much the proportion of the S&P return that has come from the Magnificent Seven, which, again, for private investors, maybe has been quite useful this year for professional investors who, who can't take such big positions, maybe not. And we've got to consider how that might play out next year. Again, the passive, you know, the, the trackers have a large exposure to these shares. And, and if things do start to disperse a bit more, then it's going to be a bit more difficult for them. But the other point, just to finish, was very interesting. Uh, some comments uh, made by BlackRock, which obviously has uh, a foot in both camps. You know, the iShares owner, a large, large passive investing business that is, you know, much bigger than its active side. But but it is actually also sounding a bit more enthusiastic about active management next year. 
BlackRock has, as you said, very you know various arms, but their their investment arm in their kind of 2024 outlook, they released a, a report this week in which they, you know, they they sort of highlighted it's kind of sim- simple line, quite straightforward line, something essentially not that controversial, but in the scheme of things, when you're weighing the passive active debate, it might you know, it seemed to me fairly consequential that they saying that an active approach to managing investment portfolios will carry greater rewards. In 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 other words, that they are they think investors cannot rely to the extent that they have done on the the sort of one and one and done simplified portfolio model because um, of various reasons. One of which, you, as you alluded to, some of those you know the concentration and extremely high multiples, particularly in, in the US market, but you know that's basically a byword for the global equity market. So, I mean, when the king of passives is essentially saying, maybe you need to tilt a little bit more towards actives and think a little bit more strategically about portfolio management and not just assume that the market is going to be, on average, the best bet, then um, I think that is a sign investors need to heed. Mm, indeed. We have unfortunately run out of time. But thank you very much for that, Alex. That's very interesting. As I say, that is our cover story this week. So do keep a lookout for that. Thank you as well to Gemma, to Mark, to Julian and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.